Lucor really fashioned itself as the new Stroganovs, as the new patrons of the region and as the power brokers who were in close consultation and collaboration with the Russian state. I mean, so they're really drawing an even deeper history than a Soviet history, one in which the Russian state is not all powerful, in which it is always dependent on and closely entangled with regionally influential notables. And it's a state in which if you just focus on the center, you miss the workings of the entire system. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Doug Rogers to the podcast to discuss the development of Russia's Perm region into an oil capital and the influence of Luke Oil on the politics and culture of the region since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Doug Rogers is an associate professor of anthropology at Yale University, where he specializes in social cultural anthropology of socialist societies and their post-socialist trajectories. He is author of The Depths of Russia, Oil, Power, and Culture After Socialism. Here's Doug Rogers. Why don't we start by having you describe the origins of the book, what led you to talk about or to investigate the role of oil in Perm? Sure. I mean, this is a book, this is my second book, and it sort of came about by some level of coincidence. I had done my dissertation research and then my first book about a small village in the Perm region. And as that book was wrapping up, a lot of the people I knew were sort of headed into the oil industry in one way or another. And oil was becoming a, this was sort of 2000s, oil was becoming a very big thing in the Perm region. And that sort of coincided with me looking around for a second project. And many of the people I knew said, hey, why don't you write something about oil? This is not something I had looked for or really known much about previously, but I was sort of led to it ethnographically by just the people I knew and, and the concerns of what was going on in the Perm region at this time. So, so that's sort of where I started. I had a number of contacts there who said, this is great. And then I sort of followed them and followed other threads and kept reading and, and ended up, you know, five or six years later with this book, The Depths of Russia. And, and what were some of the concerns, the people who were encouraging you or locals, they were encouraging you to look into this question, how is oil beginning to impact them around their lives in addition to them just working in the oil industry that, that made them feel that this is something that deserves more attention? Well, two things, I guess. One is the sort of increasing political influence influence of oil companies. This was a Luke Oil region. So the, the subsidiary there is, is Luke Oil Perm, which I, everyone was talking to me about the ways in which Luke Oil was becoming very politically influential and very closely tied to the regional state apparatus. But the, the thing that particularly intrigued me, and you know, this had to do with the people I knew, was that Luke Oil was becoming particularly influential in cultural production. They were sponsoring a lot of cultural events. They had hired a guy that I knew, a good friend of mine, who had worked in the Perm Regional Museums for most of his life and tasked him with spending a lot of money on cultural revival in the Perm region, of Luke Oil's money, not, not state money. And so that seemed particularly interesting to me, that the oil company was interested in 
in culture and social development and those kinds of issues, as opposed to just being sort of politically influential in a way that wasn't too surprising at that time. Well, we'll get into some of those issues. Now, most books about oil examine it at the state or, or national level, and, and hence we get, we get a series of books about petrostates. Um, and there was one written by Marshall Goldman about, about Russia in terms of petrostate. But you look at oil at the regional level from the periphery. And, and how does examining the impact of oil on a region like Perm provide us with a different vantage point for looking at the place of oil in Russia? So this is a different kind of book about Russian oil than Marshall Goldman's or others. And I guess the simple answer for a regional perspective would be that it sort of fills in details, right? The the primary accounts are very focused on the Kremlin and international oil companies and sort of oligarchs at the commanding heights. And we'd want to know a little bit more about what's actually going on in a, an oil producing region like the Perm region. Uh, that's true, but I think it gets uh, a regional perspective actually gets us much more than this as well. I think it incorporating this perspective that begins in a region and stays in a region for the most part really actually changes the analysis of Russian oil as a whole quite substantially. And I don't think this is just the case for Russia. I mean, petrostates so-called petrostates are always regionally based. It's not just Russia. I mean, if, if you think back in the American history, Texas, Oklahoma, or the Niger Delta, Nigeria, or eastern Saudi Arabia. I mean, these are uh, there's always particular regions within larger states that are the ones producing the oil. And how those regions interact with the encompassing state is a pretty crucial question, I think, that really changes our understanding of the nature of that state not just filling in sort of local color or things like this. So I'm after not just regional color, but a new way to think about the politics of oil and gas in Soviet and post-Soviet Russia. And that ranges from political economy of the industry to the role of oil and culture and, and regional identity, things like this. So I guess it's important to add at this point that it's not, my claim is not that the Perm region is somehow typical or representative of Russia as a whole, but that thinking at a regional level and following oil at a regional level sort of opens up a set of questions that I, I hope to use in this book to reformulate some of the ways we think about Russia much more broadly. It certainly allows us to look at how integrated oil becomes or the production and distribution of oil becomes in a local region and how, as, as your book shows, it really integrates with state structures and other cultural forms and other institutions. Right. Very closely tied together, all of these ways. And, and the fascinating thing as I came to research this book more was that I could really watch this actually grow up from the ground level. This was a new set of inter, inter, interrelationships that started in the 90s with the end of the Soviet Union. And you could see this, the, the, you know, through the networks of people and industry and where the oil moved and how the oil flowed and what was exchanged for and what it was associated with and how it was represented. I mean, you see this coming together of oil and state and economy and culture and society very clearly at the regional level in a way that's not so visible at the national level, I think. Right, right. And in many respects, too, I mean, this isn't certainly unique about Russia and oil because I live in Pittsburgh and the imprint of the steel industry in terms of culture and, and in terms of institutions that were created, you know, in the mid, early to mid 20th century is very visible here. I mean, the steel industry played a major role. Absolutely. This is in some senses a story about the natural resources and corporate influence in public life that's much bigger than Russia. And, and part of what I wanted to do with this book is to, to some extent, to place Russia in that global conversation rather than have it be just a story about sort of Russia and Putin as petrostate. And, and the, the point of those stories always seems to be that Russia is somehow an outlier or this is 
oil capitalism gone off the rails or, you know, these are particular kinds of Russian companies. And, you know, there's a there's certainly a Russian history and a, and a post-Soviet history there. But precisely as you're saying, I'm wanting us to think about this in the context of places like Pittsburgh or Houston or or Alaska or or wherever, where there's other kinds of influential corporations and other contexts where oil production is very important. Well, now your analysis focuses on the materiality of oil in Perm. What do you mean by the materiality of oil and how does it manifest itself in the Perm region? I guess one way I could explain this is by saying that, by pointing to petrostate theory again and saying, you know, the main question of petrostate theory is about oil as money. How much export revenue oil brings in, how much of a role in the federal budget does oil play and sort of gyration of oil prices and things like this. That's a, and then how does the state spend that oil money? So that's a fine question, but looking at a regional levels enables me to think about all sorts of qualities of oil as a substance from its geographical and geological spread, you know, where is it within a region and how does that that spread of oil as a substance play into politics or economics or culture? It looks at pipelines and other kinds of technological infrastructures and, and how society builds around them or what they have to do with larger social forces. Thinking about materiality enables me to look at the ways in which oil is represented um, and enters larger cultural systems in sort of art or media or other visual imagery. So all of these things are generally about oil as a substance and how it plays into all sorts of other ways. And and so I think that's the way I would I would phrase what I mean by materiality. Would you also, your, your book certainly, I think, points in this direction. And perhaps this is the big, one of the big underlying questions of the narrative that you're presenting is that looking at the materiality of oil and how it manifests itself in, in various ways in a region like Perm, it's also ultimately producing certain types of subjects and certain types of citizens and identities for people who live in that region. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the main thing that's been going on since the 1990s. I would say is that is that it is through thinking about oil's centrality to the Perm region, to the economy or to politics or to culture through this sponsorship that I've mentioned, that people have begun to think of themselves as inhabiting an oil region and and think about themselves as dependent on or in some relationship to an oil company. This is a major new thing. And it starts in the 90s and it's still going on in this region. And it's very different from the ways people experience themselves as political or economic or cultural cultural subjects in the socialist period. Once you expand on that a bit, what, you, what are the differences you see in terms of how people understood themselves or expressed themselves in the socialist period versus from the 1990s on? Yeah. So this is the, the first thing I take up in the book is the ways in which this, what I call the socialist oil complex or oil in a socialist political economy was different from oil in capitalist contexts. The Perm region was the world's first socialist oil region. The Soviet Union was was an heir to the oil deposits in Baku, which were part of the capitalist system in the pre-revolutionary period. And that's one story. But socialist oil really began in the Perm region with the discovery of oil in 1929. And by the 1950s, this was the second Baku for the Soviet Union. It was the main oil production region. And this is, from its very start, a socialist political economy of oil. And this is a, creates a very different kind of set of relationships, I would say. And I guess I would say more or less four things about that difference with capitalist 
oil industry. And, and the first one derives from the fact that socialist economies, as we know, were planned economies governed by these elaborate plans for how everything would flow through the Soviet economy hatched at the top. And my take on this with respect to the oil industry is very influenced by historians and economists and anthropologists thinking about how those economies worked. And I sort of focus on the way in which the motivating factor in these command economies, these centrally planned economies, was the attempts to increase control over the ability to distribute resources. There's an anthropologist, Catherine Verdi, who calls this socialism's drive to maximize allocative power. And in that kind of a context, natural resources were often subordinate to heavy industry. It was heavy industry that turned out steel pipe for drills, motors, all the other stuff that oil production needs was created by heavy industry, which was the real center of, of the Soviet planned economy. And so oil industry had to compete with the agricultural industry. Are these factories going to turn out tractors or drilling pipes? They were very subordinate to industrial, heavy industry heart of socialism. So quite a different place in the overall economy in socialism than in capitalism. You find in both capitalist and socialist contexts shortages of oil, expectations that there's not enough oil, but these derive in the socialist context from hoarding and bargaining and, and mismanagement that always took place within command economies. And in the capitalist economy, from quite different contexts, which is basically the efforts of states and oil companies to reduce the amount of supply on the market. The biggest problem in capitalist economies with respect to oil has been there's often too much of it on the market. We're seeing that now with low prices. So shortage in both capitalist and socialist contexts, but from very different places. Another important thing about oil in the socialist political economy was that the export of oil on international markets, something that was very crucial for the Soviet Union, never returned as money to the sites of production. It just ended up in the Soviet budget. So so you don't get boom towns. The Perm region was never sort of an oil boom region in the Soviet period in the way that North Dakota or Texas, Oklahoma, or other places around the capitalist world became boom towns because the money comes back. It doesn't. And in part, for these two reasons together, the lack of the return of the money to the region and the relative lack of importance in the socialist political economy, oil was kind of not a very important or high prestige industry in the Soviet period. The leaders of the Perm region in the Soviet period were from factories. Factories, defense industry, that was the real model and heart of socialism in the region. Refining to some extent, oil refining, but oil production was sort of low prestige, you know, out there in the mud, in the districts with the not so prestigious peasants. So in pure political economic terms, oil was not really central to socialism in the way that it was to capitalism at the time. You even see this in the in the sort of symbolic vocabulary of socialism. You know, if you think in the, the 1930s and 40s and 50s, the time of really building socialism, it was factories. It was focused on steel, human labor. You know, Stalin was the man of steel, not the man of oil. So again, very different from either capitalist consumption or consumption context. At the same time in the United States, you had this very elaborate working of oil and oil products into everyday life, suburbanization, automo automobility, very closely tied to American notions of freedom and liberalism and, and all of these things not happening in the Soviet Union. I mean, this is really quite interesting because since the collapse of the Soviet Union, you're charting this shift from oil being a subordinate industry and a subordinate product. I mean, though important, but in the scheme of things for the Soviet economy, it's, it's more um, a tool rather than a means itself. 
where in the post-Soviet economy, oil and, of course, natural gas shift into the major central aspect of post-Soviet Russia. That, and that is, as I discovered as I was working on this project, that's the major shift. There's differences between the 90s and the 2000s, of course, but but the real big difference is the way in which oil became so central to life in so many ways in the post-Soviet period and in ways that it wasn't at all in the Soviet period. And that radical transformation is really at the heart of what I'm wanting to get across in this book. Talk about the the role oil played in Perm's post-Soviet barter economy, because you have a very interesting discussion of oil as a commodity that's being traded in the 1990s and its role in developing new corporate forms like the, the Perm Commodity Exchange and the Perm Financial Productive Group in the early 1990s. Talk about this place of oil in the barter economy or its emergence as an important aspect of the barter economy. This is really the first chapter in how oil does become important in this post-Soviet context. And it's a curious chapter because it, we don't immediately get suddenly an oil boom town like in North Dakota or something. It's a convoluted path that oil takes to becoming central to the economy. And, and this is a place where the regional story is crucially important because the Russian federal state was so weak and so disorganized in the 1990s that regional level decisions and processes took on outsized importance. And the story I tell here is, is really quite different from the standard story of, of oil in the 1990s, which focuses on you know who gets what production fields and privatization and who's got the most reserves and things like this. That happens in the Perm region really not until the mid-1990s, whereas oil is becoming central to the regional economy and to regional life and to regional identity already in sort of 1989, 1990, 1991. And the first way in this which happens, the first step is that as the Soviet Union unravels, the major refinery that's based in Perm begins to be able to export its oil abroad and the proceeds from that suddenly start coming back to Perm rather than to the Soviet central budget, at least to a greater degree. These are products that they can actually sell, unlike most of the other factories in Perm, which are not able to sell on international markets. And frequently they are bartering these products and they are bringing back not not money, but everything from uh, down jackets to Toyotas and all these things enter the sort of regional barter economy that's emerging right in the 1990s. And so very quickly it becomes known that Perm's refinery is the source of these new and interesting goods that are coming into the region uh, and that are so coveted, right? New, well-made Western products or Japanese products, these Toyotas. So it's, it's first in refining uh, and the sale and the barter internationally of refined oil products that oil becomes influential regionally. As the 1990s wear on a little bit, early 1990s, oil becomes entangled not just in these one-on-one -on -one operations, but in much more corporate structures. These very, the first capitalist corporations of the Perm region in some ways become interested in oil products. The Perm Commodity Exchange was a, a structure set up in 1990 to coordinate exchange and the movement of goods in the region after the end of central planning. It was understood to be a risky and unfamiliar venture that it lasted only a couple years, but it made home for for a very early seed of a new regional elite to grow and make their first millions and also just be at the center of regional exchange, specializing in how different factories and different suppliers would exchange things. They didn't do much trading in oil, but they became central to the regional exchange networks that uh, replaced central
central planning. So can you, can you give an example? Like, how did this work? Because here I'm thinking of, you have this mentioned where one of the people you interviewed made a really interesting kind of revision of Marx's idea of uh, money, commodity money, where it was the chain between the, the product, the commodity transforming into money was actually really long. So both on the Perm Commodity Exchange and then this new group that was founded by the leaders of the Perm Commodity Exchange called the Perm Financial Productive Group, what they're doing basically is what I call petro barter. They are holding together the region through the exchange of oil products produced by Perm's refinery. So in this example, you cite, you know, I'm asking them about what these barter chains look like. And they say, and this guy says, well, you know, we didn't just transform money into commodities. That's too simple. That wasn't what we did at the time. And Marx was wrong that that's the, that's the way capitalism worked. What we did was we took oil, refined oil, and we provided it to these logging enterprises up at way in the north of the Perm region in the forests. And we got from them, we didn't take money from them, but uncut timber. And we brought the timber back here and we, and we split the, this wood into timber. And we took that timber and we transported it to Krasnodar. So this is like 1500 miles away, right? Kilometers away in the Caucasus. And we didn't sell it there either. We got apples from Krasnodar. We brought the apples back to Perm. We sold the apples, you know, to sort of everyday consumers on street corner markets and kiosks, and we got money from them. And then we started over again. So oil products specializing with these guys at the Perm Financial Productive Group are, uh, you know, so that was just one operation. But oil products become almost like the general equivalent of the money form. They're doing this for everybody. And, and, and they're collaborating very closely with the regional state apparatus. And the biggest things they're doing here is basically trading fuel for food. This is a largely agricultural reason, but in a risky agricultural environment, it's far enough north that, you know, you need a lot of fertilizer and a lot of care of the soil. None of these agricultural towns can afford the fuel for tractors or combines. They get the fuel in advance and then from the Perm Financial Productive Group, and they don't pay for it. They just hand over their harvest the end of the year to the firm firm financial production of the group, which puts it then into these larger circulations. So elaborate chains of exchange, totally demonetized at which fuel products were in which fuel products were absolutely central. This is really the first way in which oil becomes central to the post-Soviet region is through these barter exchanges in the very early 1990s. And it's again, as, as I talked before, it's the materiality of this oil that becomes crucial because it's our oil. It's tangible. It's regional. It's not the kinds of transactions you find in pyramid schemes or in devaluation and inflation that are sort of taking over everything else. This is our oil. It's Permian oil, and it's being exchanged for Permian food, and it's feeding our people, and it's enabling our economy to survive. So that very close identification of oil with regional identity, long before privatization happens in the production side of the industry, and that centrality, very different than what we found in what we were talking about in the socialist period. By the the end of the 1990s and into the early 2000s, Luke Oil a major Russian oil corporation begins to move in and gobble up the local perm oil production and refinery uh, system. Talk a bit about how Luke Oil became economically and politically dominant in the perm region. So as you say, you know, Luke Oil is a, is a, a major, in some ways, the major Russian oil company, vertically integrated, based in Moscow with its main production fields in Western Siberia. Perm's refinery actually became part of Luke Oil in 1990. 90, but Perm's production fields were uh, independent until the mid-1990s, 1995, 1996, when they are to some extent taken over by 
Luke Oil. You mentioned Luke Oil sort of gobbling up the region's production centers. But one of the interesting things is that this was one of the only places where Luke Oil or other major Russian corporations actually failed in their effort to take over regional production and or failed in part. And what happened was that these regional alliances between the oil sector and the state that had grown out of these barter exchanges were so strong and so entrenched in the Perm region that Luke Oil's attempt to take over oil production in the region was not complete. They, they had to sit down and compromise with the regional political and economic elite. And for 10 years in the Perm region, from 1995 through 2004, you actually had a compromise in place where there were two separate Luke Oil subsidiaries, one controlled by Luke Oil in Moscow in, in an arrangement that looked like everywhere else in Russia where Luke Oil was operative, and one that was split 50-50 between Luke Oil in Moscow and the Perm Financial Productive Group and its allies. And that group had an agreement by which they produced a certain amount for Luke Oil, and then anything over that amount, they could do with what they wanted. And this became a source of enormous wealth and political power in the region. And that sort of extended and gave a new dimension to the ways in which oil became influential in the regional state. One of the most interesting ways in which this happened was right as Luke Oil is taking over, or partially taking over, in the mid-1990s, Russia is in what people sometimes call the non-payments crisis. Uh, everybody's in debt to everybody else. There's not enough money. People are trying to avoid the money economy. And what Luke Oil does, what Luke Oil Perm, this new, one of these new subsidiaries does, is begins issuing these things called vexels, promissory notes that were fairly common in different regions of Russia. But these were oil-backed vexels. It was a basically uh, the oil company guaranteeing the local currency. You had all these notes circulating around that were stamped with Luke Oil and were redeemable for or a certain amount of oil products, or for a certain amount of money, or, or or you could pay at least you could pay down inter-enterprise debts and small business debts with these vexels. So you know, there's not many more ways I could think of that a, a company could could advertise its political power or establish its centrality to a region than issuing the currency. Um, that everybody is using. It's all circulating around. It all says Luke Oil. And, you know, Vexels worked in this fascinating way by everybody sort of, as you transacted them, you had to sign for them. So some of these Vexels are, you know, feet or yards in length at the end, and everybody's written their names in there. And Luke Oil sort of becomes central to the very means of exchange, not exactly in the petrobarter way, but not really in a um, fully monetized way either. So one more step in the way in which the sort of material forms of oil and oil companies become central to the region. Now, just to be clear, though, are these also being used by citizens in their everyday life or just basically between enterprises? Well, they started off as between enterprises in when they when they began in 1995, but they fairly quickly spread to probably not everyday life. So you couldn't use a Vexel at a store to buy, you know, apples or a television or something. But but if you were, say, a small farmer, a peasant farmer who, who needed a significant supply of oil, you know, to deal with a field or, or production or something, or if you were a small enterprise owner in a, in a privatized state or collective farm, you would be, you would be using Vexels at this point. So, so it started off just at the enterprises and paying taxes, regional taxes and and circulating debts. But fairly quickly, it spread to not individuals at an everyday level, but certainly small business, where where these things would be fairly well known and, and fairly well 
established, certainly among anybody who was uh, in business at the time. What's the decline of the Vexels? Like, how did they they move out of circulation and out of use? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the the Russian government is at a at a federal level is very pleased with these Vexels in some ways because they allow sort of debts to circulate. But on the other hand, there's a lot of pressure from the International Monetary Fund and global banking and political establishment to actually reassert state control over the monetary system. So various forms of vexels gradually become illegal or um, or hard to maintain, and and they sort of peter out. They don't completely disappear. They're still issue, you know they're still sort of a debt instrument for for Russian companies now, I suppose. But as um, as a main means of of exchange, they they sort of peter out and are replaced by money, especially after the financial crisis of 1998. You have a highly monetized uh, economy where it is in fact this tight relationship between oil and money that predominates in the capitalist world starts to appear. Now let's talk about the the role that that Luke Oil played particularly in the in the 2000s in Perm's NGO community as part of their their corporate social responsibility movement. How did Luke Oil facilitate Perm's civil society and regional state building in the oil boom years of the 2000s? So, you know, 1998 is this financial crisis and following that uh, Putin comes to power in the presidency, oil uh, money starts flowing in these, you know, these guys in the Perm region who started off at the Perm commodity exchange are suddenly becoming fantastically wealthy. Inequality is increasing. And the sort of beginning of the of the answer to your question is that is that the oil industry and oil sector employees are sort of beset by critique from all sides. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the so-called new Russians, with what many people believe is a fail a failed decade of transition where they were hoping that they were going to get wealthy or become middle class at least, and they didn't. While the oil industry is making all this money, the Putin administration is enormously critical at this point of oligarchs. Putin is beginning his effort to sort of rein in the oligarchs and say, you know, no more squirreling your money away in Cyprus or Switzerland, invested at home. So out of this sort of critique emerges a new effort by Luke Oil to actually be an active partner with the state in social development. And they begin calling this corporate social responsibility. The state in the Perm region is at this point underfunded still and very weak. They could use all the help they can get from a wealthy corporation. And Luke Oil begins to design and come up with this whole set of ways in which they're going to intervene in and aid with social development. And they're sort of modeling their efforts on those of Western extractive companies. They're reading the websites of, you know, Mobile and Chevron and all these companies that have very elaborate corporate social responsibility programs. And they're also sort of watching all these Western aid agencies that are distributing grants across the former Soviet Union. And they come up with their own program of social and cultural grant competitions in which they work very closely with the regional state apparatus to invite organizations around the Perm region to submit grant applications for funding of different kinds of projects, healthcare, education, culture. All of these kinds of things are suddenly up for sponsorship by the oil company in collaboration with the regional state apparatus. So it's out of this critique that this effort emerges and then it sort of gains momentum through the 90s, uh, through the 2000s. Would you say that the Luke Oil is replacing the state or is it integrating with the state? Because here, here I'm going to, you briefly mention in your book, something about neoliberalism, though you, you don't deal with it because that would require 
you know, a, a different book. But nonetheless, this the role of the corporation providing social services through the through granting agencies through, you know, these kinds of means really does speak to a, a neoliberalism of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't object to, to characterizing this as broadly neoliberal, um, you know, if we understand neoliberalism not to be necessarily the sort of withdrawal of the state, but its reformulation, one aspect of that would closer collaboration with corporate interests. So, so I, I would certainly say that that's what's going on here, right? I mean, on the commissions, on the panels that make judgments on these grant decisions and award funds are both state agent uh, representatives of state agencies and Luke Oil representatives. So it's a very close entangling. I mean, I, it's it's a really ground level entangling of of state agencies and corporate structures with the goal of establishing the sort of development of the Perm region. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly say that that fits well within what we generally think of as, as sort of neoliberal restructuring. Now, talk a bit more about the types of cultural production that they sponsor, particularly in the art world in the 2000s. What are some of the cultural initiatives and, and how did they intertwine with the oil complex? Luke Oil is interested in collaborating on a number of fronts, right? I mentioned education and healthcare, um, all these things. But, but their signature thing in the 2000s, very curiously, was cultural. They were interested in cultural sponsorship. That was sort of their marquee thing. Their very first grants were to folk artisans in oil producing districts of the Perm region. And there's a very curious history here. They were, you know, I spoke a lot with the people who were involved in designing these programs and thinking about them. I mean, what they were dealing with was the fact that in many of these former agricultural regions that were now really becoming primarily dependent on oil production, massive unemployment. It's not clear where people are going to go for, for other jobs. And the idea, the initial idea, which seems far-fetched in retrospect, and many people thought was ridiculous at the time too, was that you could revive some of these towns through folk culture by having people return to the production of folk handicrafts that would then be sold and they could make some income for themselves to address this sort of gap in wealth between oil workers and everyone else. It didn't work so well. Initially at the time, it turned out these people were not making a lot of money. You know, Luke Oil employees had to bring them all of the sort of raw materials and then they would come back three weeks later and like take the finished materials to market and sell them and then they would bring the money back. So rather than give up, the company decided that what they needed to do was to build an entire tourist industry for the Perm region so that people from Perm and eventually other regions would make their way out to these rural districts to buy local goods and, and you know, stay in, and create a demand to build hotels and revive museums. And they put an enormous amount of effort into this, sponsoring the revival, basically, of different kinds of cultural identity across all different parts of the Perm region. They're, I mean, these guys are primarily specialists in vertical integration. That's what they did in the oil sector. And as the 2000s wore on, uh, that's what they're doing in the cultural sector. They're trying to create the consumption of folk handicrafts and folk culture as a viable economic activity and thereby to revive the economy of these, these rural districts. They're also doing other things. They're playing politics at a district level to a very significant extent. By the 2000s, governors in the Russian Federation are no longer elected. They're appointed by, by the president. But at the local level, at the district level, there's very actively contested elections. And through these kinds of grants 
and sponsorship of development projects, Luke Oil is really working to influence those local elections in ways that will aid their production, right? They need access to land, they need collaboration, they need calm conditions for work. And it's through these kinds of corporate social responsibility grants in part that they're trying to obtain those local favors. And finally, in Soviet Russia, enterprises, particularly large ones and, and ones in mono towns in particular, was the center for a lot of social cultural services. The The enterprise was essentially the patron over the community at large. In what ways do corporations play this role in post-Soviet Russia and how does it compare to the, the, the old Soviet forms? Right. I mean, there's several several links here. I mean, just one one link would be the, the kind of networks that emerged and controlled these kinds of things. It was frequently, at least some of the people who ran these corporate social responsibility programs at Luke Oil were former communist party members. And it was very frequently sort of local Komsomol or communist party organizers in oil producing towns and districts, the people who worked in libraries or museums and who had nothing to do in the 1990s. Suddenly, they're the ones writing the grants. So it's sort of a revival of people who were key to that kind of production of culture in monotowns in the Soviet period. That would be one thing. There's also this sort of general layer of, I would say, a Soviet-era expectation of what firms do. Who is responsible for development? Well, not just states, in fact, but firms should be very embedded in local communities, this close identification of work and community. Now, it's different because it was not, at a regional level, very focused on oil in the Soviet period, as we talked about earlier. But but that general expectation about what corporations do seems to continue to inform a lot of, a lot of what's going on. And, and I would say, actually, there's a deeper level to this as well, deeper historical level, in that you know one of the things that Luke Oil became very interested in, in the north of the Perm region in particular, is sort of reviving the image and the legacy and the architectural monuments of the Stroganov family, which were sort of the 19th century nobles who controlled much of this region. And Lukoil really fashioned itself as the new Stroganovs, as the new patrons of the region and as the power brokers who were in close consultation and collaboration with the Russian state. I mean, so they're really drawing an even deeper history than a Soviet history, one in which the Russian state is not all powerful, in which it is always dependent on and closely entangled with regionally influential notables. And it's a state in which if you just focus on the center, you miss the workings of the entire system. Um, so I would push it even back to the Stroganovs. And, and, and I would follow Luke Oil in doing that. That's not just uh, my comparison. They and others framed uh, the Stroganovs as the first practitioners of corporate social responsibility in Russia. And also, as we've talked about, I would, I would even put it in not just a Russian context. Part of what I'm wanting to do here, as, as you picked up in a couple of your early questions, is to say that this is not actually strange in global perspective at the moment. It's got a Russian history and a Soviet history and an early post Soviet history. But if you look at the studies of corporate social responsibility in today's Africa or in Indonesia, you find very similar kinds of corporate enclaves and corporate state relationships, corporations increasingly influential in the governance of human lives at the sites of energy, natural resource extraction, and even in other places. And in that sense, you know, I think this is a part of a global, you could call it neoliberal reconfiguration in the terms you used earlier, in which corporations are really on the rise in their influence. And in that sense, the rest of the world is starting to look like the Soviet model rather than the other way around. 
That was Doug Rogers, an associate professor of anthropology at Yale University and author of The Depths of Russia, Oil, Power, and Culture After Socialism. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye. The oil runs out.